Joshua chapter 5. And Larry, I can hear the uh, middle school over here beating her drums. Can you slip through and go down and uh, see if you can settle the Indians down a little bit over there before they go on the warpath? Joshua chapter 5. Two watershed events mark the early history of the nation Israel. The parting of the Red Sea liberated the Hebrews from slavery. And the rolling back of the Jordan River opened the door to God's blessing. At the Red Sea, they said goodbye to their past. At the Jordan River, they embraced their future. They embraced God's promises. And verse 1 of chapter 5 picks up the story immediately after their crossing over the Jordan. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Boy, when God dammed up the Jordan River... And the people crossed over on dry land. It scared the daylights out of the kings of the Canaanites. They realized immediately that this was not going to be a fair fight. These Hebrews had supernatural help. You know, it's interesting. In 1887, an archaeological discovery occurred that confirmed Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. You might have heard of them, the Amarna letters were sent by a coalition of Canaanite kings to the Pharaoh in Egypt requesting military assistance to stave off a powerful group of invaders. The letters identified these invaders as the Habarus, another name of the Hebrews. Obviously, no help was sent. The Pharaoh had already had enough of these Habarus. But it's interesting that we found letters that confirm their fear. Before we get to verse 2, did you hear about the Catholic priest, the Pentecostal preacher, and the Jewish rabbi who all met frequently to discuss theological matters? Obviously, these three clergy all believed that their way was best, and so one day they proposed a contest. They would journey out into the woods, they would each find a bear, they would preach to the bear, and they would attempt to convert the bear. The most successful conversion would win. When they returned to compare results, an interesting discussion proceeded. Father Flannery, with his arm in a sling and with his crutches by his side, he talked about his experience. He said, well, when I found the bear, I started reading him the catechism. He really didn't want to listen. And so he grabbed me and he started slapping me around. But quickly, I grabbed up some holy water. I sprinkled it on him. And as soon as I did, it was amazing. This bear became as gentle as a lamb. Well, preacher Billy Bob, he was in a wheelchair with both of his arms and legs in a cast. And he said, well, when I found my bear, glory, hallelujah, I preached my best hellfire and damnation sermon. We don't sprinkle, we dunk. So when I laid hands on him, he didn't like it. And we wrestled up one mountain and we wrestled down another mountain until finally I threw him into the river and I dunked his hairy soul, praise God. And suddenly he became as gentle as a lamb. Well, Rabbi Feinstein, he was lying in the hospital bed with an IV drip in his arm. His whole body was in traction. This guy was in bad shape. He opens his eyes and he says, well, looking back on the experience... Circumcision may not be the best way to start out with a bear. But circumcision was exactly the way God started out with his people. The second generation out of Egypt had never been circumcised. And yet as far back as Abraham, circumcision was the mark that God used to identify his people. In verse 2 we're told, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves 
and circumcised the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And I'm sure that became the name after the experience. It was probably not the name of the hill before the experience. You know, today the hill of the foreskins is covered with juniper and eucalyptus trees to memorialize this event. It's a joke. <laughs> juniper trees. Juniper trees. Juniper trees. Eucalyptus trees. Eucalyptus on the hill of foreskins. Anyway, moving on. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, if you'd raise your hand, we'll make sure that you get one. Anybody, anybody need a Bible tonight? Okay, great. <laughs> and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come up out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. You remember the penalty for unbelief was death in the wilderness. And guys, this is still the penalty today. For even after you have been saved, you still have to believe. I hope you know that. Even after you've been saved, you still have to believe. To live in victory, you need to see yourself in Christ. You need to believe that you belong to God. That His victory and His blessing belongs to you. Hey, fail to believe. Fail to lay claim to God's blessing. And you'll die in a wilderness of defeat and despair. This is what the crossing of the Jordan meant to these people. They were laying claim to God's blessing. They were going to continue to believe, not just that he could deliver them from slavery, but that he could give them victory. Perhaps you're saved. Perhaps you know that God can deliver you from sin. But can he bless you with victory? Do you want a land flowing with milk and honey? Can you believe him for that? Can you believe him for the victories and the blessings that you're looking for? You still have to have faith even after you believe. Verse 7, Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp Till they were healed. Now, if you're an adult male, imagine with me a flint knife. <laughs> a little outpatient surgery with no anesthesia. This was a painful experience. I got to be honest, hernia checks are enough for me to avoid the doctor. <laughs> I feel for these Hebrews. We can understand why they had put off being circumcised for 40 years. But here's the real problem. Their reluctance had created an identity crisis. For though they were children of God, they continued to see themselves as slaves of Egypt. The Jewish rite of circumcision was an identity-forging experience. You see, circumcision was the Hebrew ID. It was the Israeli soldier's dog tag, so to speak. It was his proof that he carried in his body the fact that he belonged to God. It solidified his identity. A circumcised Jew bore God's mark on his most intimate part. It was a reminder that he was special, that he and his offspring that came from his loins belonged to God. And it's interesting, this is what water baptism does for the Christian. It too is a mark of identity. It too is an identity forging experience. You see, there's no turning back once you've been baptized. Did you know that in the early church, they didn't really consider you to be a serious Christian until you had taken that step and been baptized? 
Being baptized labels you as a child of God. And when we share in Jesus' baptism, we identify ourselves with Him. And baptism can also be painful. And I'm not just talking about if the preacher holds you down too long. Baptism is a humbling act, really. That cuts through our pride like circumcision. It peels back our flesh. It's death to what I am apart from Christ. It identifies me with Jesus, though, and it opens me up to the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's very interesting that Jesus was baptized at the very spot where the Hebrews crossed the Jordan River. The very spot. If you'll flip ahead to John chapter 2, verse 28, you can do it later. There we're told that Jesus was baptized at a place called Bethabara, which means house of passage. It got its name because it was the spot where the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan River. It's interesting. They're crossing baptism, both identity-forging experiences. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Did you catch that? They had been delivered from Egypt for 40 years, but it wasn't until they were circumcised that the reproach of Egypt was rolled away. There are a lot of people that have been saved, but it's not until you're baptized, until you identify with Christ, until you take that step of being publicly committed to Him, that that reproach of the past gets rolled away, that you turn a corner, that you say, yes, I'm going to count for Jesus Christ. The word Gilgal means rolling the stigma that these Hebrews had carried from their time of slavery onward, their failure in the wilderness was all rolled away at Gilgal. Their circumcision at Gilgal marked a new day for Israel. And a new day begins for us. Not just when we're saved and cross over the Red Sea, but when we take hold of the identity of our life in Christ, when we hold on to that identity, when we see ourselves in Christ Jesus, a new identity forms. From a practical standpoint, it's when we see ourselves in Christ that old things pass away and all things become new. It's at our Gilgal or rolling. That's when the Christian life really gets started. It really gets on a roll. And notice what else happens at Gilgal. So the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. You see, Passover was another identity-forging experience. When the Jews ate the Passover meal, they connected with their rich spiritual legacy, which is also what happens when the Christian comes to the communion table. It's by eating the bread and drinking the wine that we forge a deeper bond and spiritual connection. Communion with Jesus, community with each other, gets strengthened at the communion table. You see, Passover reminded the Hebrews of the events that had made them a nation. The exodus from Egypt. Communion reminds us of the event that has made us God's people. The cross of Jesus Christ. And as soon as the Hebrews crossed the Jordan, God ordered up two things. A circumcision and a Passover. To forge their identity as his people. Likewise, Jesus has given us baptism and communion as two faith-building experiences that we can participate in. Well, verse 11 tells us, And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Isn't that interesting? After 40 years of eating manna every morning, the manna suddenly ceases. Wilderness rations have now come to an end. It's time for Israel to rise up and possess the land that God has given them. Here's a lesson for us. I think God is more prone to work miracles for younger believers, people that he knows are weak in their faith, people that need tangible support. I think he's more inclined to give you miracle manna, but the time comes for each of us when faith needs to grow up, when we need to 
step in and take possession of the blessings that we have in Christ. There comes a time for each of us when God stops spoon-feeding us with the manna and expects us to feed ourselves on the rich treasures He's already given us in His Word. The manna dried up and they began to feed on the land that God had given them. The end of chapter 5 marks a turning point for Joshua. And if I were to ask you tonight... Who led the children of Israel in the battle of Jericho? You would probably remember that old song. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho. Yeah, yeah, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. But you know, you'd be mistaken. And the answer, who fought the battle of Jericho, will surprise you. Verse 13, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, General Joshua now... He's on a reconnaissance mission. He's scouting out this city. And remember, the walls of Jericho were enormous. There were actually two walls, we're told. The first wall was six foot thick and 11 foot high. The outer wall was 12 foot thick and 35 feet high. They say the slope of the outer wall was at a 35 degree incline that made it nearly impossible to scale. And I'm sure Joshua is sitting there thinking, wow, how will we ever conquer these formidable walls? That's when he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. In other words, he was armed and ready to fight. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us? Are for our adversaries. Joshua's fulfilling the role of a good century. In essence, he's confronting this approaching shoulder, shoulder, soldier, soldier. And he basically shouts at him, Who goes there? Friend or foe? And so he said, No. In other words, neither. He says, Who goes there? Friend or foe? He says, Neither. It's interesting. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Notice that the commander answers whether I'm a friend or I'm a foe depends on your answer. The question is not, is God on my side? The question is always, am I on God's side? Whether God is your friend or foe depends on you. Joshua is being told here to move over, basically. Heaven has come to help. Joshua is being replaced. The commander of the Lord's army is on site. God has dispatched his commander to lead these Hebrews into battle. We're told, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? A humble Joshua is quick to submit. General Joshua recognizes military rank and he respects a higher command. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Notice this, you've heard these words before. Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua receives the same command that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. Joshua is meeting God just as Moses had met God on top of Mount Sinai. What a comfort this must have been to Joshua and to Israel. On the eve of their first major battle, up against these impenetrable walls, the commander of the Lord's army, no less, comes to take responsibility for the campaign. And who was this commander? The clue is how Joshua treats him. He worships him. And this precludes him being an angel. For you know in scripture, angels are never worshipped. The only angel who wants to be worshipped is Satan, the fallen angel. Only God is supposed to receive worship. That's why I believe that this commander of the Lord's army was none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And so now if I ask you, who fought the battle of Jericho? Our Lord Jesus did. And who fights the battles in your life? I hope you say the same. I hope you say that Jesus fights my battles. He is still the Lord's commander. 
Hey, whether it's a crack in the rock on Mount Sinai, whether it's a lookout under the palm trees near Jericho, God always comes to meet us. And when God meets us, he turns ordinary places and ordinary times into holy moments where we too are tempted to, are told to take off our sandals for we're on holy ground. When you face a foe, God is faithful to meet you at the point of that battle and remind you that the battle is not yours. The battle is his. And our response needs to be the same as Joshua's response we need to acknowledge rank. We need to bow down and obey His commands and worship Him. Which sets us up for the battle. Several years ago, I ran across a humorous list entitled Rules of Combat. And if you're a veteran, if you've been in the service, you'll appreciate this. Here are the rules of combat. Number one, if the enemy is in range, so are you. Number two, incoming fire always has the right of way. Number three, the easy way is always mind. Number four, try to look unimportant. The enemy may be firing at brass. Number five, teamwork is essential. It gives the enemy someone else to shoot at. Number six, don't draw fire. It irritates the people around you. Number seven, when the pin is pulled, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. Number eight, five-second fuses only last three seconds. Number nine, it is generally advisable to eject. It is generally inadvisable to eject directly over the area you just bombed. You won't be welcome. And number ten, if it's stupid but works, it isn't stupid. Now, number 10 is how Joshua must have felt after the battle of Jericho. For in chapter 6, the commander of the Lord's army gives Joshua some really strange instructions. I'm telling you, ingenious generals have used unorthodox combat strategies many, many times, but none have ever employed a battle plan quite as bizarre as the one we find here. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. Hey, when the Israel army camped outside of Jericho's walls, the city went on lockdown. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. For six days the men of Israel are to march around the walls of Jericho. On the seventh day they're to march seven times around the city. And at the end of the seventh revolution the priests are to blow these seven trumpets and the people are to shout with a great shout. Guys, this is not your typical West Point battle plan. This is not common Pentagon strategy. Can you imagine Joshua at the staff meeting trying to sell this plan to his generals? Verse 6. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Notice Commander Jesus tells Joshua to break several Levitical laws in this battle plan. I find this very interesting. According to the law of Moses, neither the ark nor the priests ever went into battle. At Jericho, both of them led the way. And they're also to fight on the Sabbath day. In fact, on the Sabbath day, they're supposed to march seven times around the wall. That far exceeded the limits on travel that had been established under the Sabbath regulations. What's the deal with these discrepancies? 
Remember, Jesus is the one here leading the charge. And I believe the point is being made that victory over sin, the victory we're longing for, will never be achieved through the keeping of the law, but through following Jesus Christ. And Joshua said to the people, Proceed and march around the city, and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. For six days the people conducted a silent march. And you can imagine the men of Jericho all standing on top of the walls, mocking and taunting these crazy Hebrews. And the people remaining silent. Perhaps God was teaching them that sometimes you speak loudest when you remain silent. Some of us could stand to use that, learn that lesson. So Joshua had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. Verse 15, but it came to pass on the seventh day. That they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day, only they marched around the city seven times. Thirteen times in all, Israel marched around the walls of Jericho before they came a tumbling down. I'm sure it was a test of their faith. You know, it would have been easy for them if the walls had just fallen after the first pass. But Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12 tells us that it takes both faith and patience to inherit God's promises. Sometimes we have a lot of faith, but we lack patience. Sometimes we got a lot of patience, we don't have any faith. Hey, it takes faith and patience to inherit God's promises. It's a persevering faith that wins spiritual victories. I imagine these 13 trips around these colossal walls gave the Hebrews plenty of time to inspect them for breaches or for vulnerability. After 13 passes, I'm sure the people had concluded that they could never take this city on their own. And I think there are times when God has to bring us to the same conclusion. He has to make us pass around our problem a number of times before we come to the conclusion that, wait a minute, without God's help, I'll never, never overcome this. And the seventh time it happened, we're told, when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, the idols, the good luck charms, the occult paraphernalia, all those kinds of things. Stay away from them, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. And this is just a small foreshadowing of the trouble that's yet to come. We're about to find out in the next chapter. But all the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Verse 20. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. How did the walls of Jericho fall down? I have no idea. But they did 
when the people had faith enough to obey God's instructions. The key to their victory was faith. And guys, sometimes God's instructions, they sound to us just as crazy as these battle plans sound to the Hebrews who marched around Jericho. You know, the path that Jesus charts also at times appears strange. His strategy for your spiritual victory is full of paradox. It's full of perplexity. Take, take, pay attention to this battle plan. You gain when you lose. You get when you give. You live when you die. You become great when you serve. You end up first when you're willing to be last. You become most honorable when you're mocked. You speak loudest when you remain silent. You become strongest when you admit your weakness. This is why I say Jesus' battle plan for your victory sounds just as crazy as the battle plan at Jericho. And here is the challenge to following Jesus. It was the same as at Jericho. Do you have faith? Do you? This is how victories are won in the Christian life. Here's how spiritual enemies are defeated. Fearless faith and ruthless obedience to the commands of Jesus. This is the key. How does joy issue from sacrifice? I don't know, but it does. How does abundant life flow from total surrender? I don't know, but it does. If you follow God's battle plan, God will bless and God will work and God will win the victories for you. But you have to fight through your initial reaction and you have to obey Jesus no matter what he commands. Following God's battle plan made Israel a laughing stock. And following Jesus will seem foolish to the people around you. Just remember who gets the last laugh. Verse 21. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. A brutal judgment indeed. But remember, these people were steeped in the occult and witchcraft and Satanism. This was an irredeemable civilization. They had passed the point of no return. And it was a severe mercy, really, to bring it to an end. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house. And from there, bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. You remember Rahab had saved the two lives of the men that Joshua had sent in to spy out the land. And now these Hebrews were honoring their promise to spare the life of Rahab and her family. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day, the time of Joshua's writing, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now if she dwelt in Israel to this day, she'd be pretty old. This was just until Joshua's day. You know, when he wrote it, that's what he means. Rahab, by the way, ended up marrying a Hebrew named Salmon. They had a son named Boaz, who married a Moabite woman named Ruth, who had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son, by the way, named David who fathered a dynasty of kings that eventually gave rise to an eternal king named Jesus. Rahab became a pretty special person. Rahab also makes the hall of faith, by the way. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. Rahab, though she was a harlot, was richly rewarded for her faith. And no matter your past, no matter your blemishes, no matter the sin-stained life that you've lived... If you put your faith in Jesus, you too will receive a rich reward. It's called grace. Verse 26 tells us, Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, 
Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city Jericho. He shall lay his foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Here's a prophecy that's fulfilled 450 years later. In 950 B.C., King Ahab orders a man by the name of Hallel to rebuild Jericho. 1 Kings 16 verse 34 is the key verse. You can read it later. I'm going to read it for you right now. 1 Kings 16 34 says this of Hallel. He laid its foundations with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates. According to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the prophecy was fulfilled. Some 450 years later, now, it's interesting. Modern archaeological digs at Jericho have unearthed a large house that had encased in the foundation of its walls and in its gates two jars containing the remains of infant children. Apparently, they had been sacrificed to Baal. This could actually have been the house of Hael which would make it amazing archaeological confirmation of the Bible. Well, chapter 6 ends with the obvious, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. Now, after Jericho, Joshua sets his sights on further conquests. Joshua's strategy is going to be to divide and to conquer. He's going to split Canaan in half. He'll conquer the southern coalition of kings first, and then he'll defeat the northern kings at Hazor. Gilgal remains his beachhead, his base. And from Gilgal, he starts sending out his troops. And just west of Jericho, just up the road, there was a tiny little town that had no fortress, no walls. It just looked like an easy place to conquer. After toppling the formidable walls of Jericho, Ai would be easy pickings, or so he thought. Joshua didn't know that the seeds of defeat had actually been sown in the wake of the victory at Jericho. Chapter 7 tells us about it. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. And guys, God does get angry when we sin. Now his anger doesn't cancel out his love. Aren't you glad? But he does get angry nonetheless. And here's what angers God the most. Our sin will keep us from receiving his blessing. And fulfilling his purposes. God wants to bless you. But when you sin and interfere in that blessing, God gets angry. God hates that. Wesley Hunt writes this. Sin causes the loss of God's power and presence. Sin shuts off the showers of God's blessing. Sin stifles and strangles the abundant life promised in Christ. Sin paralyzes and immobilizes the life of the individual believer and the local body. God's message to Joshua applies also to God's people today in times of obvious spiritual defeat and decline, namely, deal with sin. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, but they fled. And you know, it really wouldn't have mattered if they'd sent three hundred thousand up there. It was sin in the camp. But they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. The unthinkable happens. Underdog Ai 
blitzes the Israelis. 36 soldiers die and the other 2,000 tuck tail and run. This is a humiliating defeat. The casualties were disaster enough. But this embarrassing loss demoralizes the Hebrews and energizes the enemy. This kills Israel's momentum and it hardens the resistance against them. This was a terrible defeat. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. Both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Now this is an unusual reaction from a man like Joshua. Joshua is sounding like the murmuring Hebrews in the wilderness. Joshua is blaming God for their defeat. Verse 8. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? God responds to Joshua in verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. The Hebrew army had been sabotaged by secret sin. I wonder how many Christians, how many families, how many churches, how many business ventures suffer from a similar problem. You've been aching because like Achan, there is sinful stuff buried in your tent. You've been holding on to an attitude or a habit or an object that angers God. And he has refused to bless those in your house until you clean up your house. Are you hiding any accursed things tonight? See, from the outside looking in, there's no reason for your ministry, for your life, for your business not to be growing. There's no reason for your family not to be prospering or for your business not to be successful. But the Lord knows there is sin in the camp and He won't bless you until it's gone. Notice God says in verse 13, Get up! There are times when we need to drop to our knees and repent and pray. But if there is secret sin in your camp, you can pray and pray until you're blue in the face and it will do you no good. It's not the time to kneel, it's time to deal and take action with that sin. He says, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. Because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You, you until you cannot stand before your enemies, take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to the families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man, and then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. It's somebody's last night on earth. Well, the next morning, the parade begins. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah and he took the family of the Zarhites. And he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And can you imagine what's going on in Achan's mind at this moment? Sweat is streaming down his forehead. 
His palms are clammy. It's a clear day, but it's stuffy. He's outside, but it's still stuffy. His knees are starting to knock. He's quivering. Judgment is closing in. Why in the world doesn't Achan confess his sin and throw himself on God's mercies? I have a feeling God would have forgiven him and saved him. But you see, that's the problem with sin. It causes you to hide and cover up and believe that you're the exception. You see, sin is so delusional. You start to think that you're going to be the first person in history to get away with this. Then he brought his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. And now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And they are there, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. Did you notice the three stages of temptation there? He saw, he coveted, he took. Remember Genesis 3 verse 6? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She too saw, she coveted, she took. You see, sin starts with a delight. Then it inflames a desire. And then finally a deed. Hey, you won't do the deed if you don't nurture the desire. And you won't have the desire if you harness your delights. This is why the psalmist tells us, delight yourself in the Lord. You know, the best defense is a good offense. The key to overcoming temptation is not getting there in the first place. It's joying in the Lord. It's delighting yourself in the Lord and in the things of the Lord. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Here is our big mistake. We think that we can keep sin secret. Oh, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm the only one my sin affects. But that's not true. Sin affects the whole camp. God chose to remove his blessing from a family due to the private perversions of one person. A church leader with unconfessed skeletons in his closet can hinder what God wants to do in a church. A gold wedge buried in your tent. Or pornographic files on your hard drive. Or an inappropriate relationship with the opposite sex at work. Or bitter thoughts can have the same effect. They can cut off God's blessing on your family or your business or your church. They'll cause God to remove his hand of blessing from you and from the people that you love. This is why no sin is a secret sin. In verse 24, Joshua deals. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. By the way, valley of Achor means valley of trouble. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Achor means trouble, and the sin of Achan had been trouble for Israel. Chapter 8 describes the conquest of Ai. 
For now that the secret sin has been dealt with, God is ready to fight for Israel. And he plans a good old-fashioned ambush. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you. This is no longer a small detachment, by the way. The whole army this time rises up. And rise up, go to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. But notice this. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Now isn't that ironic? Israel was forbidden to take plunder from Jericho. But Israel is free to take plunder from Ai. Oh, if Achan had just been patient. If he had just waited to the next city down the road. If he had just obeyed God and trusted God at Jericho. He would have gotten all that he wanted and more at Ai. But he couldn't wait. God continues to give orders to Joshua. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us as at the first, then we shall flee before them. For they will come out again after us till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore we will flee before them. Then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord you shall do. See I have commanded you. It's interesting that God's Jericho battle plan was mysterious. It was supernatural. Whereas his plan for Ai, though shrewd and cunning, certainly was far more conventional. This is just a simple ambush. We're not talking about walls falling down and so forth. And I think it points out that God works in different ways. Sometimes God works through the supernatural. But other times he works through very natural factors. Sometimes God heals you instantly. Other times he works through the doctors. The important thing is for us not to put God in a box. He has special plans for each situation. Verse 9. Joshua therefore sent them out and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up he and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. And they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Now it happened when the king of Ai saw it that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle he and all his people and at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. The plan's working. Verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. That must have been the signal to the ambush party. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. 
They ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. So they had no power to flee this way or that way, and they just totally discouraged. And the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. Now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side, and they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. Verse 24. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, and when they had all fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city, Israel took his booty for themselves according to the word of the Lord which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Deal with the sin, and victory will resume. Verse 30. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And in the rest of chapter 8, Joshua fulfills God's instructions to Moses Back in Deuteronomy chapter 27, the Israelites now journey a little north to the valley of Shechem, just north of, of Bethel. And there he places on the two peaks that are on either side of the valley of Shechem, he places the different tribes. Six tribes on the Mount of Gerizim, six tribes on Mount Ebal, and that's when Joshua reads the law of Moses and he reminds the people of the blessings and the curses. You remember we talked about this in Deuteronomy. From Mount Gerizim, they shouted out the blessings. From Mount Ebal, they shouted out the curses. Joshua read to them the law and reminded them that if they obey, they'll be blessed. But if they disobey, they'll be cursed. The chapter closes in verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the congregation of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Notice that. There was not a word that he did not read. Evidently, he believed that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole follower of God. So our motto is nothing new. Joshua practiced it as well. And there we have Joshua chapter 8. Next week, we're going to pick up Joshua chapter 9, and we're going to go all the way through Joshua chapter 12. So read those chapters before next Sunday night. And if you've got a wedge of gold buried in your tent, or if you've been holding on to one of those slinky Babylonian garments. You've been holding on to some accursed thing in your life. If there's sin in your camp, hey, for God's sake, for your sake, for the people around you's sake, deal with your sin. 
There's a time to get on our knees and repent. There's another time to dig up the accursed thing and get rid of it. Tonight it's time to deal with that sin. I trust that you will. Father, thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we know that you get angered by our sin. Not because you don't like us. But because you don't like what sin does to us. You don't like how it cuts off your blessing. And it hinders your purpose. For Lord, you have dreams for us. You have a treasury of blessings stored up for us. And it is your greatest joy to give good gifts to your children. Lord, help us to, to get anything out of the way that might be hindering that tonight. Help us, Lord, to get rid of the secret sin. And help us, Lord, to open up the channels of blessing to ourselves and to the people we love around us. Father, I pray that, that none of us would be sabotaged, that this church would not be sabotaged by secret sin. That you'd help us, Lord, to deal with those issues. Repent. And to be obedient to you. We want to be in your blessing. We want to fulfill your purposes. Work in our hearts tonight, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.